Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday night. I'm running behind a lot on schedule. I'm working hard this week to put together my, write up my lectures for the series I'm doing right now on the uh, Basins, History of the Basins and the Coercion. That's taking up a lot of time. But I did promise the Freeze that I would do a bio for their family. So I'm going to put that out of the way and then hopefully tomorrow to do the Parsha of Torah and so forth. Um, this is from Yehuda Freed, who was a student of mine. Actually, it's from his father, Bruce, Bruce Freed. Uh, and they said they wanted to talk about their grandfather, or great-grandfather, whatever you want to call it. That's the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch. I never did him before. The famous Shlomo Gansfried. Not so famous, but Shlomo Gansfried, from Hungary, the real Hungarian. Well, Putka Putka Rus, anyway. And this is being sponsored, therefore, by Bruce Fried, in honor of Milton and Marsha Fried. That's what they said. <laughs> okay. Uh, Yehuda was a student of mine. They went to Tomo. Now I think he's in the Kolel and Columbus, I believe, which is being run by my friend Henoch Morris. And Yehuda's wife would be Nechama, that used to be a very good friend of my daughter, Ali Sheva, and she lived in Baltimore. So, happy to do it. Now, um, when you talk about Shlomo Gansfried, uh, obviously he's associated with the Kitsu Shulchan Aruch, and that means I call it the Goldilocks effect, because you know, some people write this form, it's too long, and some too short, and some are just right, like Goldilocks. So that's exactly what happened to Kitsu Shokhanar. We're talking about somebody who lived in Hungary, but was not a Chassid. Later in life, was attacked by Chassid, actually. Um, was not a Chassid, um, and lived all the way in Munkach area, in the Ungvar, which now is in all, this is all in Ukraine, the borders have changed. It was a piece of uh, Ukraine that was acquired by Hungary long ago. So this is probably confusing to most listeners, but I can't help it. When you go back, he lived in the 1800s. In fact, he lived right through the 1800s, from 1804, I think, to 1886, right through the 1800s, 19th century. That time, there was something called the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg Empire. And part of that, uh, as a self-contained unit after 1867, was something called the Kingdom of Hungary, which is a lot bigger than the, the nation of Hungary today. The Hungarians know it, baby. At that time, Hungary was a big business, had close to a million Jews, 800, 900,000 Jews, something like that, and had frumer areas and less frumer areas. Among the frumer, frumer areas was where our hero spent his life. So Shlomo Gansfried, basically, I mean, he he moved, he, 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 he left sometimes to go different places. Basically, he lived all of his life in that small area. I was there, called Subcarpathian Ruthenia, Putka Putka Rus, which was basically a piece of Ukraine that was part of Hungary. You know it as Munkach area, Chust, but Ungvar is part of that. Today they called Ushkarod. Um, after the First World War, that area was attached to Czechoslovakia. When my mother lived in Slovakia, 
This is next door to Slovakia. Uh, when they had it good. And then, of course, came Second World War and Hitler and all the rest of it. And we know what happened over there. Now, during the lifetime of Rav Shlomo Gansfried, Hungary was a fairly good place for the Jews. And you could be from and this and that and the other, provided you subscribe to Hungarian nationalism, at least gave lip service. And uh, he lived some, some through some pretty tumultuous times because uh, Hungary did not like its relationship with Austria and there was a big revolt, revolution, 1848-49, which was crushed. But I don't want to go into that. And the reason I don't want to go into that is it didn't really affect him. Okay? Shlomo Gansby was somebody who pretty much spent his life, as we would say today, in the Dalai Lama He had the usual background. Came from a little town, Taka from Ungar. Um, I think his father died when he was young, something like that. The local rabbi saw he's a Balkishwin. Um, he took to Heller, and he took to him. And we're talking about what I call the, the Oberlander Hassam Sofer world, in which the main important institution is the yeshiva, and the yeshiva is a place for teenagers, not in their 20s, more or less from 10, 11, 12 to like 19. And it's a, a place for very intense learning, but I, I maybe learning is the wrong word. It's intense living, and if you're a good guy, you form an intense relationship with the head rabbi of Rosh Hashim in Hungary is one and the same. And that's the world our hero grew up in. Okay? I would say in general, the Hung- this is the world of the Kesef Nivchar that I've talked about many times. What you do the, you know, Hassam Siferway, the Sugis. You understand? To understand the Gemara is you learn up the Gemara, and then you do the Sugi book, and you get the Cedar Ashitos, and you finish Bechinas, and you move on. And in that world, there's plenty of lambdas, but I would say that there was certainly a tendency, a unlike the Lithuanian yeshivas. You learn by Gemara or Sugi or something like that, like what's the din at the end? What's the light at the end of the tunnel? A lot of this has to do with the fact that the guy who was Rosh Hashim was also the Rav. So that can't help but affect your learning. Let me put it this way. Suppose I was a rabbi of a town. And running a basin. And I get childless. It's just natural that if I also have students, I'm going to bring up those sugyas that will help me in my work. So let's say somebody asks you a question. I don't know. I had a question the other day about surrogate mothers, things like that. You want to learn up those sugyas that would have to do with that subject. So you say like this. The students aren't losing out. But so happens is work on stuff that's good for me anyway. That's the world... Of those years. Uh, he obviously was, from the fact he wrote all these famous books, as you'll see in a second, he was very much into learning it. Hasuga Shmaitz He did the Lomdis, and he has a say from Babasra and all that. That's not really where he was at, it seems to me. And he ended up spending most of his, a lot of his life, not most, as a dying. There's a story, you know, classic yesteryear story. That, uh, you know, he was very good in yeshiva. He married a girl, tried to go into business, set up a store, went bankrupt. Because you can't run a business if you don't really put in full time into the business. And a guy whose head is in learning, that ain't good for business. That's good for learning. It's not good for business. You know? If you want to make a go of it, you make a go of it. 
I mean, if you want to run a store successfully, you got to run a store successfully. It is a little bit surprising to me. And I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Because in his writings, it's clear he has a very organized and sort of mind. That's his big kayak. The Sidor and the and the Hartsa'ah, the Pashtas, the exposition. Which is a kayak. Okay? It's an it's a kayak. Uh This is often associated in the history of rabbinic literature with people who were businessmen. For example, the Chayyotim. I think I mentioned this once when I did the Chayyotim. You can see, he's very organized, very masutter, uh tries to tie up loose ends, make things clear. Because <clears throat> that's the sign of a successful business person. If you're running a business, you don't know your accounts, and you don't know your inventory, and this and that and the other, this is going to fall apart. The Chayyotim was for many years a successful business person. Eventually on bankrupt, but that's caused the Napoleon Wars. You know, you couldn't control the economy any more than a guy with a store could control going bust as a result of Corona. I mean, who knew that was coming? But generally speaking, it was Matzliach, not our hero. In early age, like I said, he got married. He tried to run a business. It didn't go. There are mice luck about it. It didn't go. And so his Rebbe, you know, took him in, trying to find a spot for you. What was interesting is, here's a guy in his 20s. What's going to be the future? It was in this context <clears throat> that he was in the process of running a failed business that he published a very successful safer. That's the Kessis Sefer that many people are familiar with, which is the law of how to be a safer. To write a safer Torah, Mezuzah, Tefillin, and all that stuff. It's very famous, very famous part of his biography, that even though he was relatively young, around 30, he showed it to the Chassam Sofer, who was very old, and it blew him away. And the Chassam Sofer wrote him a tremendous Haskama. Your Sefer is Gavaldic. I want everybody of my students to read it. It's the way to go. Let me put it this way. It was quite a Haskama. In my mind, you know, leave me unrelief that the Chassam Sofer, who was a very smart person, obviously, wasn't simply trying to praise the Sefer. I think he was trying to give a guy a leg up. Here's a guy who's a businessman, so you can tell right away, it's not for head and business, you know, and he's going to need some help getting a career in the rabbinic world or something like that. And if you walk away having written a safer on any subject with a glowing uh, haskamba from a Godel Dor Hasam Sefer, that's got to open doors for you. In other words, it's it, it helping with a job. Now it didn't really work, but he tried. The reason it didn't work is because in Hungary, the rabbinate was a mafia, meaning you had to be married to the right person. If you didn't have the right protexia, it ain't going to happen. There was a million guys in Hungarian yeshivas that were the best guys and all the rest of it, and they never got any position because they didn't have the right protexia. It's not exactly the way it is nowadays. It is occasionally, but... It's a much wider and open world. I'm told in Israel it's like that. You know what I'm saying? I'm told in Israel it's like that. It's, it's locked up. That's what was over there. And so he wasn't so-and-so's son or son-in-law or brother-in-law and that kind of thing. This was a big, great guy in learning. To tell you the truth, in Hungary there are plenty of those. And so he never got a rabbinical position. For a little while he had some little door for like some nothing place. See, that's it. Anybody who was somebody, he wanted a town 
with a sickle kahil in it. These small places at 10, 20, 30 families, heck with it. That's open for anybody because they don't pay anything. They're too poor. And the life is very rough. They have nobody to talk to in learning. So those little stupid positions <clears throat> were open to people with talents. Which is why in Europe, in places like Hungary, not only there, sometimes very small communities had very big Talmud as rabbis. And people think, oh, everybody was a high madrega that even the smallest town, the, the Balagola, was a Bucky Bashas. That's baloney. The reason why I told you, because the big positions were generally for people of Protexia. The little positions, you know, the Protexia people weren't usually interested in it, unless it's a stepping stone to something higher. And it was open, therefore, for others. And the others included the best people. It's a funny world, but that's what it was. You, know, you don't have to be crazy to be Jewish, but doesn't hurt. Now, in the case of our hero, uh, he's growing up 1804. It's a tumultuous times. Um, when he grew up, the Napoleon Wars were going on, but by the time he's 10 years old, it's all over. When he's an orphan. From the next, until the time he's 30, that would put you 1834. Mm, uh, let's say from the time he's 35, 40 even. He lived to be in his 80s, okay? Um, so, you know, he was moving place to place in that province. Um, I forget exactly, but the chief rabbi there tried to help him. Uh, he got that little position in that small town, Brunowitz or something like that. But when he hit around late 40s, the person who was the rabbi in Ungvar which you'll see in a second was a large city, relatively speaking, said, you know, I'll get you a job as a die-in here. And he spent the second half of his life as a die-in. The city I'm talking about, Ungvar, would be a population, in the time he lived there, I would estimate about three, 4,000 people. I know they say in 1910 it was like 5,000, 5,500. This Rabosai was considered once in a time big town. Compared to these other little dwarfs and these nothing places, we had 10, 20 families come to a town, city actually, where you have several thousand Jews, men, women, children. So that means it's close to a thousand families or 800 families. That's already epis. That was considered like, you know, like you're in New York, in that part of the world. And so to be a dying over there was a different experience. You're in a town with a lot of people. They have Tamir Chacham to talk to. The Rav over there. And there were several Rabbanim in Ungvar. You know, Chaim Tzvi Manheimer, whatever. And they all had yeshivas. So you're in a town where they're Talmud and Yeshiva running around. Maybe you give a couple shurim there in Halacha Lamaisa. You know, Shulchan Aruch classes. Because the Hungarian yeshivas, Shulchan Aruch classes. I mean, Shulchan Aruch. With the Lechabit Ramah, the Mangan Aram, the Taz, and... The shach and the taz, that kind of thing. You know, that was a basic part of the curriculum. You have synagogues with guys in there that to learn somewhat or another. You can give a blot shir. Again, you give a shir. It's a different life. Get it? It's a different life. So, when that happened, I would say his lot turned better. Um, and for the second half of his life, I think he was a happy person.
He wasn't looking to become a rov of Ungvar because that wasn't going to happen anyway. That was beyond. But to be a dying there means you get a salary. I don't say they paid him a million bucks, but it's a salary to live on. They community like that. And I'm sure he considered himself very lucky to have a Dayana's position in an important town like that. Chust, uh, Munkash, Ungvar, those kind of places. When you're surrounded in the province by all the terrible poverty, you were okay. Okay? You were okay. This happened um, in a very interesting time in Hungarian Jewish history because, as I said, uh, the late 1840s was a revolt against the Austrian rulers. The revolt was eventually crushed. Uh, the Austrian army wasn't strong enough to do it. They had to bring in the Russian army. Hear what I'm saying? Country A had to bring in the army of Country B to help put down the revolt, but they did. And the rebellion was, the rebels were hanged and this and that and the other. And then was a period of upheaval. And that's the era when the reform movement rose in Hungary. Maybe I shouldn't use the word reform, but neo-law, which is a kind of conservative, let's say, and that's when it really took off. And that's where you had big pilug, big arguments and factions in Hungarian Jewry, which was large and growing, over, you know, should everything just be Orthodox or not? And not only was there arguments over whether everything should be Orthodox or not, but the question whether modern Orthodox is kosher or Not conservative, modern Orthodox. I remember that our hero, coming from a you know, a Munkash type background. Ungvar, that's what it is. Very right wing, naturally, very from, very pious. Um, and they criticized, he was also the critic of Hildesheimer. Hildesheimer had a Shiva Noberland, which was very modern Orthodox. Now, it was very from. Rav Hildesheimer was a very from guy. But the fact that they had the Munichol there, the Rosh Hashiva taught in Munichol, you know, made it in the eyes of the right wing, like Trafe. But I also remember distinctly seeing was that Shlomo Gansvi's had a son who learned in that yeshiva. So basically, the guy's criticizing Wayu, but his son went to Wayu, as it were. Which there must be a story there. Many scenarios suggest themselves, but I don't know. Okay? But it was a time of what we call Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress, in which the direction of Yishka was not so clear. Now, I wouldn't say that our hero played a major role in this, because he wasn't a rogue. Always remember, he was not a big player. The big player was the bottom of towns, especially the bigger towns. The Robin Ungvar was a player. The Robin Munkash was a player. Obviously, the Robin Pressburg and places like that were big players. The guys are dying somewhere. He's known, but he's not a player. Right? Now, the um, in the uh, Orthodox neolog controversies. It was during this time, second half of his life, they turned out all these books, all of which are Alok Lamaisa, which became kind of classics in their own way, although not like the Kittar Shukhar. I'm thinking very specifically about the lack of a symbol in Hilchus which is still, you know, looked at today. Let's put it this way. You always see it in footnotes. I myself have looked at it maybe a dozen times. No, not so much. But you see it always quoted. To know that he's a he's a player in Helchus Nida. You say in Melchus Mikvah. Uh, uh, he has something on Shrita, a book on Shrita. What else does he have? You know, these specialty types 
Sfarim. Now, they were good for the type of person who's a dying, the rabbi, and needs help with a specialty book. So the world he's inhabiting is what we would call the world of cheater books. And I mean that in a good way, not big way, because I like cheater books. Okay? But to do a successful one is a whole talent. Because you have to know the non-cheater stuff and put in the cheater style, make easy style. Obviously, this... Now we're talking about the 1850s and 60s. Um, so he turned out, like I say, all these books. There's a couple others I don't remember. But that's the ones you usually see. The Lech of Asimla, and the Kesa Sofer, and so forth. Now, Taurus HaZevach, that's the one on the Shechita. i never seen it. Now, I don't doubt it's very good. Meaning, he has the power of organizing and making himself clear. But I wouldn't say those things Mamish took off. And then, there's a dumb luck. To, if I can use that term. It was very famous. In 1864, he published his famous book, Kitzel Shulchan Aruch. And that book, as we all know, took off like no other safer. I mean that really, like no other safer. The Kitzel Shulchan Aruch became an instant classic. Mind you, it's not a Kitzel of the Shulchan Aruch. That's just the name of a book he gives it. Another guy can call it Aruch HaShulchan, another guy can call it this. You can call it the safer whatever you want. You get it? So when he calls it a Kitzur Shulchanar, he means a mini Shulchanar of a certain type, but not that it's excerpts from the Shulchanar. So here you have the history of the Shulchanar then the Kitzur Shulchanar The Shulchanar originally was published by Yosef Karo as a Kitzur Shulchanar. <laughs> Except that Yosef Karo was living in a dreamland. He was a godel up there. The world he inhabited, I don't know what was going on up there. Because he says... Oh, b- very b- briefly, the Yosef Cairo lived in the 1500s, and his main book is Beis Yosef, which is big. And it's great, but it's more nature of encyclopedia. Let's say, for example, you want to know about Borer. I'm just picking something at random. You'll find a place where it talks about Borer. You'll find the right place in the, in, in the Beis Yosef, and he'll give you the whole circuit, you know, what they were showing him. However, that's long. After the Beis Yosef composed and published, the Beis Yosef, the book called Beis Yosef, he wrote a short version of it. You might say a dumbbell version of it, which in his mind was a dumbbell version. In his mind was a cheater book, and he called the Shulchan Aruch. And he had some plan. If you learn 60 Sifim a day, you finish in a year or whatever. Who do you know is going to read 60 Sifim of the Shulchan Aruch? Especially when you get into, you know, Ebenezer, or more importantly, Choshe Mishra, give me a break. But, you know, he was on such a high level, Beis Yosef, he thought, oh, this is something for the average Balboas. <laughs> sure, they'll learn 60 chapters of the other day of you know, today, and another 60 chapters tomorrow. Next thing you know, they finish the other day in a week. Yeah, that's your average Balboas. Really? I'd like to meet the guy. <laughs> and it didn't turn out the way Yosef Kairin intended, that it's like a cheater book. But as we all know, it became a book itself, surrounded by a million commentaries. That's what happened to the Shulchan Aruch, of course. Starting with the Ramah, but then all the others. So the Shulchan Aruch as a book has a very funny and interesting history. Okay? And it certainly did not become something you like, you know, knock off, polish off. Maybe Vrecham Kanyevsky or something like that, you know, the average guy ain't learning 60, whatever, 
He's not even learning 10, 15 chapters um, per day. Now, therefore, even though Rabbi Yosukar, of course, meant well, and his idea must have been to bridge the gap between all the hard stuff and the average balabas. Uh, but it never happened. As they say, if anything, the opposite. The Shulchan Aruch became like a kind of a Gemara of its own, with a hundred Mephoshim. So that meant that if what I just described happened in the 1500s and 1600s, basically, all your classic commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch are from the 1600s. The Malgan Avram, the Taz, the Shah, the Sma, all that stuff. You know. Now, Lavush, all 1600s. But that means that if you're a regular person, there was no simple book out there to help you. Didn't exist. Which must have made the 1600s 1700s stickle bummer. That may be why the Hasidic movement, you know, shot off because the average guy took a look at the Shulchan Ark with all that stuff on it. He said, that's beyond, that's a different universe. And it was. Imagine, like I say, a Balagala or somebody like that. Taylor walks in the show. That's for the heck of it. Pulls out a bunny's big volumes of Shulchan Aruch. He sees a million commentaries, all the rest of it. Forget about it, you see? And so, what are you going to do? And that created a dangerous situation in which there's a gap between the average Jew on the one hand and the law books on the other. It's unhealthy to have a gap like that. You know? That is a theory why the non-from stuff started. Because so many of the Hamunam had no connection to Shaykhis with the Shulchan Aruch, with the Halacha books. You can't even tell somebody, read the Rambam. Eh, not really. I guess in selected parts, but not really. And so, what do you do? This created an existential gap, in my opinion. And that's why, around 1800... Uh, begins a whole series of very interesting attempts to bridge this gap at different times and different places by different people, all would show you that the existential gap was there. Just people were stepping up to the plate to try somehow or other, you know, bridge the gap. At the same time appeared the Chayyotim and the Shulchan Archerav. One coming from Misnaga, one coming from Chassid. They're not the same. But the intention is the same. The intention is to make the halachas K-I-S-S, keep it simple for the stupid or whatever you want to call it. You know, bring it down to the level the average guy can read it. A guy could walk into a shul, a chassid, and if you take the time, you can go through the shulchan acharav. Most of it. A guy can walk and read the, the chayyotam. Not true. <laughs> Not true. The Chayyotim is fantastic. It's not for the average guy necessarily. If it's a shear being given by somebody who knows how to give it over, yes. The Chayyotim assumes that you understand a lot of things from the Gemara. He'll say, you can't do this because it's a tartate asasrate. That's the language he'll use. He'll say, you can't do this because, you know, uh, I don't know. He'll use Gemara language. Now, he's excellent in presenting it from the bottom up. And, and I like the Chayyim very much. But I can see that it ain't necessarily for the Balagol. 
You understand? The the Nasivas also came at that time with the Derechayim, which is like today a forgotten book. Same idea. Which is, these rabbis, that's what they were. Real, well, I have to watch what I'm saying. The 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 Alter Rebbe was not a rabbi, he was a Rebbe. Um, although he certainly knew what's happening out there in the Velt. The Chayon was not a rabbi, he was a Dayan. But at the end of his life, you know, most of the time he was a businessman, he was a Balabas. He knew the people of his class, but not the Balagos. A guy like the Chayon didn't hang around the Balagos. Hanging around the successful businessman, the middle level businessman. It's written for that element. The Nasivas, I don't know who he was writing for. I think of more simple. All I'm saying is the fact that he has three books coming out roughly at the same time 1800, 1820, 1830 shows you that the need was there. And each guy's trying, like I said before, to find the Goldilocks effect, which is. I don't want to make it too long and complicated. I don't want to make it too short. There were people, by the way, who made kitsuras of the Shulchan Aruch. But they're extremely brief, and they they don't work. Okay? That is where Shlomo Gonspreet stepped in. As a dying, think about what I'm saying. As a dying, you're not the rabbi giving speeches. You know, you're not giving the shir every day in the yeshiva. You're a dying. You're dealing with people every day. You have time on your hands. You're dealing with shalas all the time, practical shalas. And when people come in with their shalas, whether it's about a chicken or about Hilton Shabbos or this or another, you see the level of the public, what it knows and what it does not know. And you get an insight from firsthand experience that is invaluable. And you understand the massive, as I say before, quote unquote, of the Balagol or somebody like that. Right? In other words, not only the upper middle class, like the Chayyim, is aimed at, but even the lower middle class. I can't say necessarily it's the lower class, because those guys usually are illiterate and things like that. But the lower middle class, which was quite extensive in Europe. Lower middle class. Right? Now, because of that, see, clearly, he wrote his book called Kitzel Shokonach, which is its own work. It's kind of a consensual talk, but it's not a, an, an abbreviation of somebody else's book. He wrote his own book. He just gave it that title, because that's the effect of it. That you understand, in a kitzer way, what the Shulchanar says. Now, not all Dalachalki Shulchanar, as you know. Anything that's no Gala Misa, of the average guy, so obviously all of Orachayim, because that's for everybody. And pieces of the Yeridea and the Choshu Mishman Nebuchadnezzar. Pieces of it. As I said before, a guy like him, as I see it, dealt with Balabatim all day long. That's what a Dayan does. Imagine all people bring him Shilas. Imagine Din Torahs. Imagine, you know, issues that had to be settled. Uh, you name it. And so, this gave him a good hush. <coughs> what the public can handle and what would be useful to them and what would not be useful. So Kitzel Shkona, for example, done that by Shkita and Trefus and so forth. That's not for the guy, average ball bus to figure out. You send that to your dying. <laughs> you get it? Don't mess with that. But Bus and you actually have to know. <coughs> right? I mean, in America, there's a telephone. So you call the rabbi every time a milk spoon falls in a fleshy pot. 
But bus mechal and, and things like that really are part of the daily household routine. Happens all the time. Again, he has the basic rules of getting married and things like that. They don't have rules about getting divorced. You have no business as a Balabas getting involved. If there's anything happening to a divorce, you take that to Basin. You see? So he deals with things you have to know. He has Elchus Nida there because the person has to know the Elchus Nida. Not all the nitty gritty things, but the basics because that's part of life. So it's just interesting to me, you know, the way he operated um, and what he shows. And clearly, he wants to bring a dumbed down or better yet, a simplified Chayon, in my opinion. Now he says in Sakdama, I tell you the truth, I have several issues. Of the kids are in the house. They all omit his akdamas. I don't know why. I'm telling you, I look like four or five different copies. And in Shul, they no longer print his intro. But I remember he said in his intro that I've taken these three books, the Chayyaram, the Shulchan Acharav, and the Nesivist thing, the Der Chaim, and that's what I'm going to go by. And like Yosef Karl, if there's any issue, I'll do two out of three. I don't know if he ever kept that anymore. Then Rabbi Yosef Karo kept it. Well, that at least is the Masconis. That's the template. And all I can say is, all anybody can say is, once the book came out, he obviously was a Goldilocks. He hit the right spot. It wasn't too long, it wasn't too short. And the book took off. So much so that all the other Rabbonin, not that young Rabbonin, who were bigger than him, or at least held themselves bigger than him, and, you know, I'm a robe of a, of a city in Hungary or Poland. They were astonished. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? You know, there's some famous Russian sheep well arrested. In his area, he was known. But the Sefer took on the life itself and became the most published Sefer. I, I believe I'm right about that. They talk about millions of copies over, ever since it was came out. <laughs> Which means that the Oilam voted with his feet. And not only in Hungary, the, the kids are sort of spread all over the world. And Lithuania, Poland, Western Europe, America. It's just interesting. You see? So what I mean by that is, even a place like Lithuania, where they ne don't necessarily exactly follow those Pesachim, although you can never go wrong, I just want to be very clear about this. You will never go wrong by following the kids of Shachach. It is a book of Halacha. If a person says, that's what I'm posking like. You're not going to be Mechal Shabbos. You get what I'm saying? You're not going to be eating Trev. It's 100% that you can follow the kids of Shachar. It became a thing in our time that people go like the Mishnah Burr and all those things like that. That's fine. That's okay. Same thing with the Chayyotim. You can Paskin from the Chayyotim. There's nothing wrong with that. You're never going to be Mechal Shabbos with following the Chayyotim. You see? So the kids of I mean, again, the guy was a dying for decades. So he knew his stuff. But the way he put it out was so uh, simple and direct that he obviously had the gift of that. Uh, the Gershur Gon says that um, you can be very smart but have a gift of putting it over. That's that's a divine gift. That's the Pasuk. Person can learn of a storm on his own. But to give it over, well, is a gift from God. There's obviously, the only need to tell you that Shlomo Gantri had the gift because facts speak for themselves. The book took off and rocketed. 
And as I said before, it became, I think, the most published book. And not only that, it was published already in the 1800s in French and German and other, you know, all the languages eventually came to this country in English. In Russia, I remember reading a thing, uh, this French rabbi, while uh, spent a lot of time in the, in the early 20th century publishing the kids of Shulchan. And the reason is simple. If you had, suppose you were dropped on a desert island, you have no book. If you have the kids of Shulchan, you're in business. You get it? You can even bake matzah if it's possible on the island. You have the kids of Shulchan, you're in business. If you just land with a sitter, you're not in business. Unless you're a Vad Yosef, everything memorized. You're not, you're not going to remember what to do on Shabbos, on Yontav, Hilchus Yontav, Hilchus, you know, Kashras, uh, you know, all that stuff, right? You're not going to know. Kids of Shulchanach, you know. Kids of Shulchanach, you know. And so you never go wrong. That's why it's interesting that what happened to the kids of Shulchanach is what happened to Rabbi Yosef Kar only in a different way. Rabbi Yosef Kar was a member of the super elite. He was a big rov. Therefore, all the Rabbanim wrote, you know, things uh, uh, on the page of the kids of the Shulchan Aruch. The kids of Shulchan Aruch has never been published. It would be interesting for somebody to do it. I mean, I don't see who it would attract. <clears throat> you could publish a big sefer, the size of the Shulchan Aruch, and it'd be kids of the Shulchan Aruch with a whole bunch of commentaries around it, because they did happen. People started writing mafarshim, agreed, disagreed, uh, as part of their addition to the. Kids of Shulchan Aruch. But, you know, never all in one format like the Shulchan Aruch. <clears throat> Just in different volumes. That's why there's so many different editions of Kids of Shulchan Aruch. Lately, in our time, they have the Kids of Shulchan Aruch with the, with the Mishnah Burr at the bottom. You see? Why do you do that? The answer is, Kids of Shulchan Aruch is very easy to read. It became a favorite in elementary schools, especially in junior high schools. Although it's good for people older, also. And it's real easy to find stuff there. And it's less easy to find something in the Mishnah Burah, because then you got to know the system of the Shulchan Aruch. Not everybody knows that. And even if you do, you know, you have to know the Mechav and Ramon know where the specific Mishnah Burah is. So if a guy puts a Mishnah Burah at the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch, he's doing a public service. That's why you see those things take off. Okay? Um, what's really interesting is, uh, wait a minute. What's really cute is, um, I have a Sephardi Shulchan Aruch. Many did it following the system, the chapters of the, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the Rosh Hashanah But it's Friday style. This is from Rabbi, in Moroccan to be more exact, from Rabbi Falbar Toledano, who was in Meknes in, um, in Morocco. I bought it because it has Nakudos. I thought it was something else. It turns out to be excellent. But it's not that way. They, he mainly follows Kavachim and those guys, things like that. Fine, no problem. I'm just saying the system, the way the Shlomo Gamsi set up is so attractive. Even the Spider-Man make their knockoff based on his uh, style and system, which tells you a lot. So that book made his name. If he would just be in a Mechaber to us over all the rest of it, the Talmud Chacham would have heard of it like you've heard of Obscure Svarim. Obviously, if you're a cipher, you'd know about it. Things like that. You know, Lack of a symbol. If you're in Hilchus Nashim, you know that. Otherwise not. Kisil Shulchanar transcended it all. And um, gave him immortality. More than many Hungarian Rabbanim up there who wrote all these Shals and Shuvas from that nobody's heard of. 
because there's so many of them. It's just very interesting, okay? I mean, he had his shouts and she was out there. I think they published a few in a magazine or something. But that's not what makes him, that makes his name. What makes his name was the Kitsu Shokunar. So there you have an example of a guy who, you know, puts out a bunch of records, but one record hits the top of the charts and stays there. And that doesn't happen so often. That is really interesting. And uh, as I said before, put him in his own level, his own Madrega. Me, myself, and I, every once in a while, I do others for him. Every once in a while, I go back to the kids for sugar. It's funny. Um, last year during the corona, what, two years ago now? Remember, Han- remember Pesach time? Those shoals were closed everywhere, at least in Baltimore, many other places. They had Davin home. I remember, stuck at home, I was going through the Kitzur Shonach and Nechus Pesach, which ordinarily I wouldn't do that. I usually do with the Mishnah Borah song. It's just interesting to see his way. Now, um, there was a famous edition. By the way, in his lifetime, the book was printed like 20 times. And after his death, I bet you it's been reprinted over 100 times. There aren't any, any farm that you can tell say that about, other than the sitter. <laughs> Now, who are the safer that's been published, reprinted, republished in various forms over a hundred times? It's like crazy. You see, the guy, you know, hit the jackpot, as it were. Now, as I said before, me, myself, and I, it was very interesting. He used to be interested, he was going to go something called the David Feldman edition. There's a Rabbi Feldman from Europe, who in Europe... In Yeki Land, somewhere, published a Kisser Shonarch with a lot of um, pictures and charts and things like that, which was very useful. It was the time I was into it. But well, I would say the last 25 years, for sure, for short, if not longer. Um, the one I like the best uh, is the Charmin Sirian Balocha. And that's the way, if you want to learn, I'm just giving you my suggestion. That's all I can ever do. And that's the way, if you want to approach a subject and get a very good heck of one, I think it's one of the best ways. So in other words, let's say, now in the three weeks, um, Tishabob and so forth, <coughs> all that stuff. So one way, there are many ways of going about how to learn it. <coughs> you can get an English book. You can look it up on some website and do whatever you want. One way, is to get to Kizr Shulchanach, which isn't hard to read. You go through it, and then afterwards, you get this set from Rabbi Brown, who was also from the Ungvar area, from Podka Parkourus. And uh, the, the Sharmat Sinachalach is fantastic, in my opinion. He brings it all the later childs and chubas and things like that, and surveys it. He was one of these big bikini, you know, a velt. And he has a very good talent. Almost it reminds me of Shlomo Gansby, the finding the right shach, the right taz, the right Mogan Avram, the right Nodabi Huda, the right Sam uh, Silver. It's an excellent cheater book, right? It's an excellent cheater book. And you could do a lot worse if you want to do Hill Shabbos, for example. You and Shul, you're bored. On Shabbos, on Saturday, Friday night, you get a, a Shulchan Aruch, or if you want, the Shaman Sion which is four volumes. You look up the couple of chapters on Shabbos. You read the stuff at the top from Shlomo Gansfried. 
Then you use this term to learn You will learn about Vel. You'll be shocked how much you pick up, in my opinion. Okay? A second thing to do, I'm a big fan of the Shemr Tzimah which is at the end of the day is, a, is, is, a, is formed in the, is written in the form of a commentary and to get to the Shemr that's not what it is. Any more than the Beis Yosef was a form of a commentary of a Torah, even though that's not what it was. So, when you buy this set of four volumes, it is the Kitzur Shulchan at the top, and the Shemr Tzimah at the bottom, it's very, very good, uh, in my opinion. Now, the second thing is uh, this art scroll came out in the last years. I don't have it in front of me. With this whole edition of the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. <clears throat> and at first I said, eh, eh, eh. But then somebody got one from my shoulder and I looked here and there. It's really good. You know why? Because first of all, it's in English. To tell you the truth, sometimes the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch uses Yiddish and certain words of European. You're not exactly sure what they mean. The art school goes through the trouble of translating everything very nicely. So, in other words, at the level of translation, it's important. Usually, the Kitzvah itself, you know, is transparent, but not always. The art school is good at that. Secondly, they have very good notes at the bottom, in which they always bring the Igris Moshes. <laughs> yeah? And a lot of times, the Mishnah Bura, maybe. I just remember the Igris Moshes. You could do a lot worse than that. You know what I'm saying? I think that's an excellent vort. You have upstairs the Gitzur Shulchan which is good. At the bottom, if there's some thing from the Igris Moshe, you know, that's usually what we do in America. At least that's how I was raised. And it um, comes out very, very nice at the end. <clears throat> so, of course, there's a thousand ways of approaching a subject. There's a thousand ways of approaching Tisha B'Av and the Halach of Tisha B'Av and all the rest of it. I'm talking about one way, right? I'm talking about one particular way. But it's a classic ever since 1864. And um, therefore, the Kitzvah I've seen people turn their nose up at it, but that's stupid. Mine is stupid. The Olam is voted with its feet. They're not wrong. And if it's properly used, it's a very, very good tool. That doesn't mean you give up on the Chayyotam or something like that. Because you don't. And in certain ways, the Chayyotam is better simply because it's more comprehensive. Uh... Chayyim goes through Hilchos Shabbos, in my opinion, in a much better way, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because overall, you can either go through life not knowing the stuff, or you can say, "I learned it from the Kitzur Shulchan <laughs> right? And if anybody's make fun of you, oh, you learn from Kitzur Shulchan at least you know it. The other guy doesn't even know it. So I think with those two tools, the art. Anybody who's interested in what I'm saying today, if you have. The um, the Shemitzim Balach on the one hand, and this new art school edition of four or five volumes on the other hand, I think you would master a subject pretty well, pretty well. It's a very good cheater book, in my opinion. The Machaber himself, like I said before, you know, touched it up and rewrote it a little bit here and there, but basically it's the original stuff. For some reason. So imagine, he's a guy who's not a rogue, was a dying. Uh, but his book, you know, made him famous. And at the same time that he was writing all this and publishing it, and it was taking off, that's when he had all the big fights in Hungary. 1860s, late 1860s, 1870s. Because, very briefly, what happened in Hungary, I'm sure I've spoken about it before, 
was that um, Hungary got its sort of independence within the framework of the empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the king of Hungary was Franz Josef, the same guy who was the, the emperor of Austria. The king of Hungary, Hungary was Franz Josef after 1867. He was a great friend of the Jews. And the Hungarian government that was formed was by the Hungarian Liberal Party wasn't liberal by our standards today, but regarding anti-Semitism, it was liberal. It was not anti-Semitic. And in the best European, Central European style, they said, okay, Judaism is going to be an accepted religion. You, what is Judaism? You Jews get together, organize yourselves into a national conference to say the way the Protestants are organized into a national institu- uh, organization, the Catholics, of course, and the others. The Jews should. And then tell us what Judaism is, and we, the government, will work with you. <clears throat> the problem is there was a big pilug between the firm and the non-firm. The firm said Judaism is this, and the non-firm said Judaism is that. Was it possible to bridge the gap? Who knows? I doubt it, but who knows? What happened with Mysa was <clears throat> that three groups formed. One group was the Neologues, who said that our version of Judaism is the correct one. The Orthodox can also be a wing. There was the middle group, well, the status quo. They said, let's like work with that framework. And then there was the firm form, what they call the Orthodox. They say, we want to get divorced totally from anybody who's not like us. And anything other than that is not Jewish. If you want to call it Jewish, you can call it whatever you want. But as far as we're concerned, what you have is trafe. And they are the ones who made the original Austrit. Which means, it's a long story, but by the time it's over, they got permission from the Hungarian government that wherever you are in Hungary, you'll have two separate Jewish communities, A and B. Two JCCs, two synagogues, of course, two cemeteries, two everything. One will be the general community, the other will be the from community, the Orthodox community. There were many Orthodox shows that didn't like that. They said, let's still be part of the general community because of the principle of Kali Yisrael. <clears throat> but they were sort of overwhelmed by the from from like i said i'm oversimplifying it our hero was one of the figures in the from from he supported the austrian to secession and the fact the orthodox should be itself and i don't know the details but i know there was an attempt to set up some kind of neologue thing in ungvar some other places and subcorporates we've seen it didn't go anywhere the environment wasn't right the from cut was pretty doggone strong among the masses over there it didn't work. They weren't all some or anything like that, but from they were. And so, our hero grew up in this kind of environment. I wouldn't say he was a major player because, like I said, he wasn't a big, one of the big rabbis of the communities. But he did attend the National Conference in Budapest where all the fights happened and things like that. But I would regard him more as like a follower, the supporter of the biggies rather than an activist himself. That wasn't his role. Uh, he wasn't a millionaire, he wasn't powerful, he wasn't married to Richard. His role was in the farm. And it could be that the spread of the Kitzvah Shkodar probably may, may have done more to preserve Yiddishkeit in a lot of places than, than a lot of political speeches. Who knows? But I think that's what put him on the map. And so here we have the figure of someone who became a godel by writing a book. You know what I said? Became a godel by writing a book. Ah, he was a godel anyway. Yeah, but yet, when I say become a godel, enters the consciousness of the Jewish people. There have been a lot of people down the ages who knew a velt, 
but they're very humble, and it lived and died within. Uh, in his case, people knew who he is because the book took off. Now, for some reason, there was Hasidim, I remember at the end of his life, there was a guy, Weber, and so forth, who had converted to Hasidism, who wrote like a book against it, Mechanes Chova, I don't know what it is. You can find it online if you're interested in that. If somebody wants to know, I've seen it, it looks obscure to me. If somebody's out there looking for a, I know I have some graduate students listening, always said a podcast because they tell me. If somebody's looking for a dissertation topic, you could do one on the, on the, the Shlomo Gonsfried and his opponent, Mordechai Weber, because they exchange books against each other. And it's the type of thing that, you know, it's for a you know, boring dissertation. Maybe it's not boring. It's just a, that's a, that's a a classic dissertation subject. What kind of controversy did he have? Because I remember the guy accused him, uh, our hero, of not being respectful for the Hasidim, the Divrechaim, things like that. I don't know. But, you know, that's a insider baseball and, and didn't really affect the, the broad public. The broad public, not political. The broad public simply wanted to know, what do you do by Mincha? <laughs> you know? Broad public simply wants to know what's kosher, what's not kosher. This could give it to me in basic, simple form. Ever since the kids of Shekhanach, we've lived in a time, I should take that back. Ever since the last 50 years. Now it's 2022. So let's say from 1970 or There's been a greater awareness of the need for these kinds of cheater books. And there's now a plethora of them. You might regard the, the art school as one big example of this phenomenon, but for by the same token, you could call them a sifta, you see? Or whatever. Or Steinsalz, or anything. They're all aimed at the constant necessity of bridging the gap by making the text more accessible to the homonym of the average guy out there. Maybe it's not a goal exactly today, but it's a guy who's on a train to New York, you know, trying to figure something out. The internet has obviously affected this. You could regard the Kitzvah as a as an important milestone in this process of the popularization of uh, Torah literature. In this case, popularization of the nitty-gritty halachas. Uh, now there's a whole bunch of books coming out all the time in English and in Hebrew on very narrow topics in halacha, which is good. It's a good thing. Anything gives you clarity... It's a good thing. This is something the non from have no shaykhs to. You know, uh, they don't even know this world exists. It's interesting. They look at the massive writings, it's impossible, impossible to decipher. And anyway, who wants to? And the from say, no, there's a massive stuff out there. It can be accessed with help. And the kids of Shalom would be an example historically of something that was regarded as a big help for a long time. So, by the time he died, I mean, he knew that his book is a bestseller and will continue to be. It's 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 uh, very interesting. And as a result of that, uh, he's famous and not famous. In a very interesting way to me. Ask anybody, who's the Shlomo Gantz? Oh, he's the guy who wrote the Shulchanach. What do you know about him? He's the guy who wrote the Shulchanach. You know anything about his biography? He's a guy who wrote the Shulchanach. Because his key to fame is, is, is the one book he wrote. 
Now, he has other books that are very chashuv. We can say where the Kesa and so Lechavazimah, the other things, they are. But his fame is always to be tied to this because that's what reached the broad public. Kesa and so are not going to reach the broad public. Kesa and Shulchan will always read the broad public. Although I'm going to say one thing before I leave. As I remember from my youth, usually in schools, they learn the first part. <clears throat> you know, chakras, titsis, mezuzah, whatever, davening. Never got to the middle and later parts. The middle and later parts are actually very interesting. The whole Shabbos stuff, the whole Yantar stuff, especially when we get to the Yorodea business. It's actually very nice the way he summarizes the uh, uh, the Basra Chalb and all that. And me, myself, and I, being a coin, I love this chapter in the Tumas Kohanim. It's very nice. Always found it very, very good, especially with the Charmitz of Balacha. So you see, even in specialty areas, you could do a lot worse than use this particular cheater book. Anyway, that's what I want to say. I want to thank the priest once again and uh, give a shout out to Yehuda. And with that, I give you all a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.